0: Welcome back to Cycles of Orion. This is the fifth episode of Volume 1, Fire in the Dark, containing the third chapter of Jacob and the Time Traveler. Sit back, relax, and take yourself away into the world of the Orion Spur. Jacob and the Time Traveler. Chapter three. On board the Merceau, Jacob's trading vessel. Cryogenic stasis is one of the most regrettable experiences to impose itself upon interstellar travelers. It's the juices. No matter how many times you go into cryo, you never seem to get used to having that blue antifreeze goo or whatever it is pumped into your veins. It's cold, it's foreign, and it gives you the willies something fierce. Coupled with a lack of food and an abundance of alcohol in your gut, the experience is something like the razor blades often associated with migraines tossed into an industrial blender far too big for the job so that the metal-on-metal clatter echoes far beyond its normal decibel level and extend that impression to the whole body and then you reach something like the discomfort Jacob felt when he crawled into stasis. And if you were to think that the discomfort was over, you'd be in for a rude awakening. Quite possibly the most regrettable experience that imposes itself upon interstellar travelers is the thawing process coming out of cryogenic stasis. It's the razor blades and blender again, but this time some joker threw in some ice as well, and the blender purees and purees until finally it's turned the ice into water and you can drain it. But then you remember about the razor blades. First, Jacob became aware of himself. This was a pleasant experience, especially since he had been worried about the cryopod's latch. Then he became aware of his body. This was less agreeable, but soothing in its own way. It's always nice to awaken to the comfort of still being attached to one's body, but it's preferable that that body isn't so cold it's hot. And as you can hear, finally Jacob became aware of his body's week-long inactivity. The blue goo was slowly pumped out of him and replaced with blood as the ship ran a diagnostic on Jacob's bodily functions. He ached head to toe and felt inalterably groggy. This was the worst hangover in the galaxy. But at least he could look forward to the alcohol in his gut making its way into his new blood any minute now.
1: Ugh. I stagger onto the bridge and collapse into my chair. I don't know why I picked these fluorescent white lights to put everywhere, but here they are. And I'm forced to shade my face with my hand, at least till my eyes adjust. I hear Max stumbling out of the cryo. He clicks under the bridge and looks up at me like he's just been through hell, I say. Right? But he keeps quiet. Just stares up hatefully. I don't know if that's because of my grogginess or his thawing, but, uh, who knows? Probably both. He walks slowly over to the co-piloted seat and curls up when he gets there, and I get to thinking. For the past year or so, Max and I have been drifting apart, and I spend a lot of the time wondering why. I mean, this is my fuzzy orange friend, right? I want to make him happy. Sometimes I think that Max is just as unhappy with my life as I am, but I try to avoid that thought because it always leads me to wondering why we're both so dissatisfied. And I always come back to my dads. My dads, or in Max's case, me. My dads were hands-off. Maybe you know the type. It's not that they didn't try, just that they didn't try. Physically. They were full of talk. Full of praise and support as long as it came from words. I don't know. I was an obsessive kid. I'd have chased anything that was put in front of me, but when they saw that I was getting good at flying, they just sort of checked out. Like they thought I'd found my calling and I'd be able to find my way from then on. It's true that Jacob
0: was an obsessive child, but what he won't tell you is just how unadventurous he was. His father saw ambition in the way he pursued flying rather than him clinging to safety, and so he was allowed to become more and more insulated within the protective shell of affinity. But soon the idea of pursuing something for life terrified him. He had concentrated on flying for so long that nothing else mattered. It was his life, full stop. It was where he was most essentially himself, and his self was the quintessential pilot. With regard to his fathers, Jacob had seen a lack of concern. But what it really was, was poorly calculated philosophy. Jacob appeared to be thriving, jumping hurdles at every turn, but it was all too easy. By the time he was ready to make a try for a top post in the guilds, he had never failed at anything, and the very thought was enough to make him vow to never fly again.
1: I lived on the rock in Port Dyson for several Vermilion years, working on the harbors Biding my time, watching the ships come in, but after seven and change, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to fly again. I hated that I was going back to it. It felt like giving up on a dream, but in the end, it was all I had. Even regression was better than total rebirth, but of course, my years on the ground and out of practice had made me rusty. I'd fallen behind. The only job I could get was a low-level courier for the Vermeilan Postal Service. Now looking at it from the outside, a courier job doesn't seem so bad. You get your own ship, which can take you anywhere in Vermaelen and around the sector with express visas. My ship even had a decent defense package, which, you know, I never get to use or anything, but it's kind of a rush to know that if you get nailed by pirates, you don't have to negotiate. But anyway, the reality of the job is way worse than it sounds. Basically, you sit on your ship for extremely long, low warp, automated flights through boring systems with your only entertainment coming either from filters or the delivery drones, which I personally like to rig with weapons and pit against each other in battles to the death.
0: The Postal Delivery Service is almost entirely automated in the Vermaelen Mining Company, and employees are tasked only with overseeing drone operations and maintaining any systems not covered by the ship's auto repair. It's a dream job for mechanics at the bottom of their class who like to get high and watch fighting robots dance, but for anyone with even an inkling of ambition, it can feel like a grave.
1: The first time I got those drones to fight, I was thrilled. One of the duties back in flight school that I loved most was repairing the practice ships, and I was itching for some maintenance work. Then, I learned that the drones are programmed to auto-repair through the ship's maintenance rig, and I was devastated. I mean, I still made the tiny robots kill each other, but... after the first time, it just wasn't the same. That was about the time when I got into filters. Before long, though, I'd had enough. I applied to be a member of the Vermaelen branch of the Compash guild out of Midway, and after about a year into filters and drones, my application was accepted. I got a posting on cargo vessel, this one, complete with its own shuttlecraft. All I had to do was wait around Vermela for the ship to arrive, and that was when I met Max.
0: Then Jacob started drinking heavily when he realized that his shiny new interstellar spacefaring career was of little more interest than his parcel running. He lived in a bubble, he worked in a bubble, and he never stayed anyplace long. At some point it seemed also that Max was not so sure he wanted to be Jacob's friend anymore. Sometimes he would see Jacob put strange powders into his liquor bottles right before he drank them. There were some powders that made Jacob seem in touch with the verse and in tune with Max too. Those were the times Max loved it, but other times, usually the day after an unremembered night, Jacob could see that Max didn't know where this crazy man had come from and whatever had happened to the sweet Jacob with whom he had fallen in love. Just earlier, for example, when Max came out of cryo, Jacob was angry, in pain and hungry, and Max was hungry too, and the fuzzy little guy must have gotten to thinking that maybe Jacob wasn't so great after all, but with his forgetfulness, his anger, his neglect, When was the last time Max ate? All of this Jacob thought in a split second before shoving it back down into his memory, safe and out of sight. He had a funny little trick that he pulled, unconsciously, whenever he had a painful thought. Rather than deal with his flaws, he would forget them over and over again by concentrating instead on some minor intellectual
1: distinction. Something like... I really should stop drinking so much, it's making me miserable. Hey, you know, what is misery, anyway? Sometimes I get to thinking it's the truth. Like, maybe truth is just life with all the fun parts taken out. Whoa.
0: The pain this caused him intensified with neglect. But in forgetting, Jacob could convince himself, even for just a moment, that he was content. But content was the most that that policy could provide. This he knew, but this he forgot.
1: I give Max a scratch and then smile down at him. He bears it for a bit and then curls up at the opposite end of the seat. Fine, whatever. I wave a few commands into the helm and then start to realign for descent. And now it's time for docking procedures. <clears throat> this is, uh, Jake. Jake, um, you. <coughs> Jacob, Okay. Ready Max. Good. This is the Merso, Merso, Merso coming in with Custin. Question birth and Archie and Zieg over. <sighs> I guess this is what happens when no one gets paid. All right. Well, they don't have government, so maybe they don't have port authority. One way to find out, I guess.
0: Jacob shut down comms and, after decompression was complete, made his way to the hangar, where he willed the Merceau to lock up tight before he and Max descended onto Hagathon. Along the way, Jacob had time to think. But, instead, he tuned out willing a simple, contrived melody into existence. It was the sort of day-after music that's supposed to numb the pain in your head, and it worked. Partially. What it failed to do was soothe Jacob's hunger cramps, which were becoming more intense with every passing moment. He followed the directions to Archedon Eden that he had found in his charts, but upon arrival he could find no city. There were forests populated by monstrous trees, both leaf and needle-bearing. To the south, he could make out a brilliant blue lake which was fed by two small rivers from the north and northeast, and which flowed into a much larger river traveling west. On the eastern horizon, mountains shot up jagged and white at their peaks. It was late into a hot season, and so they were sparsely snowed. But there was no city. Enough! There were a few modest homesteads and what looked like a cobbled forum in the middle of a small town, but nothing that resembled anything like what Jacob knew as a planetary capital. He hovered above, searching the ragtag assortment of quaint rustic buildings for a sky harbor, but he found no such structure. He scanned the town's limits and found a grassy field two kilometers from the town center, flat and long enough for a landing. On the far end of it, under the forest's edge, were about a dozen vessels of varying size and function. He waved up another hail.
1: This is the shuttle craft of the Merceau, 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 Hail, and Archie and Port Authority, requesting. Did you land your
0: bloody ship already? You're frightening the locals
1: hovering around,
0: circling up in the sky like that. Who's speaking? Over.
1: At a moment too late, I realized it was Matthew.
0: Matthew, and no, there isn't a port authority. There isn't even a port. Land next to me under the trees if you want. Scan ID cutlass.
1: I'm not going to leave my shuttle in a field without decent security. Do you know how much the codes to my ship are worth right now? Over.
0: What? You think someone's going to steal it? Do you have any concept of where you are? Remove fear from your vocabulary and hurry up.
1: I'll have you know that.
0: And stop saying over. You sound like the feds. And get off the line. I'll be at the library.
1: The broadcast cuts out before I get a chance to say anything else. So I reluctantly land my shuttle and taxi over to the now dusty silver hull of Matthew's ship. The Cutlass. And at first, I'm shocked that the whole ship came down at all. It's not a big ship by any means. And it's not exactly the most aerodynamic looking thing. But, and this is what got me. I figure if the halo is convertible, probably the wings are too. Matthew might have a whole propeller system in there. or jets, M-drives, even just a glider if he used his primaries. Master travels in style. I call up my security protocols and I activate everyone, even the auto-destruct. If anyone other than me tries to get into my ship, it will blow up in their face. I say it like it's my choice, but it's guild mandatory. I'd probably skip that feature in particular, if only for the comfort of not being stuck on Agathon. As soon as I open the cockpit, Max bounds out over top of me, thrilled to be anywhere other than a tin can. He always does this, whenever we touch down together. He'll be back at the shuttle in a few hours, no doubt, fed on the kindness of strangers and filled with the smells of a new world. And speaking of smells, the first thing that hits me about Agathon is the air. It's thick so much closer than the dry, static oxygen of my ship. I have to take a moment to relearn how to breathe. I'm not used to so many smells at once, and so to me, this place reeks. The air is thick, drenched in musk, and shot through with smells that I've never smelled before. It's organic, and that's definitely not a good thing. It smells of forests and plains and bogs. Lots of bogs. But in there, too, you get the familiar stinks of sweat, piss, and... Uh, what the hell is that? Somewhere deep in the planet's gassy cocktail, there's an air that awakens something within me. A primal instinct. Like anger, lust, and fear rolled into one. It straightens me out. Turns my mind into a single point of searching. I queue up my olfactory input for analysis and run a search, but there's no wireless here. I check my connection again, but I get nothing. The verse shrinks down to a field outside Arcaden and presses me in on all sides. I take a deep breath and find the scent again. I analyze it, overanalyze it, lose it, panic for a moment, find it again, and inhale twice as hard. My stomach roars as I lurch forward in search of this source of this godly aroma. One foot follows the other without my telling them to do so. I smell it. I bathe in it. I try to categorize it. I'm drawn to it. It's becoming part of me. Or maybe I'm losing myself to it. Ah, oh, what is it? It's on the tip of my tongue. Ah, oh, how I wish it was on the tip of my tongue. Something about it triggers a half-forgotten memory, a kind of strange deja vu. The more I try to understand it, the less familiar I become. So I take another deep breath and try not to think about it at all. I breathe in the air and let my head soak it up. Meanwhile, my legs are still moving and I've followed them to the first buildings of Ark The
0: streets were abuzz with life, a feature Jacob had missed from above. Apache canopy hid many of the town's streets, which were made from the same cobbled stone that made up the foundations of most of the buildings. The upper halves of those buildings were built from wood or straw, the flimsiness of which Jacob found almost too ridiculous to ridicule. He wasn't sure if it was funny or not that the capital of the Fellowship could likely be levelled by a scouting craft. Perhaps that wasn't fair. A strong breeze might do just as well. But the smell... Jacob looked into buildings, trying to find the source. Inside every dwelling there was activity, everything from the boisterous singing of songs around the dinner table to the quiet crackle of a hearth warming a sleepy reader. There was food everywhere, but nothing looked quite like what Jacob was inhaling. He started breathing through both his nose and his mouth, because someone had told him once that if you could taste it, you could smell it better. And it didn't seem not to work, so he continued. Then he switched to deeper breaths, figuring that more of the aroma might trigger a sudden revelation. It didn't. So he hobbled along, looking dreadfully like a tourist in the big city for the first time. Onlookers smiled, confused, and some giggled at the obvious off-worlder, hyperventilating through his open maw and apparently driven toward an unknown goal with animalistic intent.
1: <sighs> I turned a corner in what looks like the main street of Archeanid. The smell is overpowering, it's close. Down the avenue is a forum square with a black obelisk at its center, but the funk smell is closer by far. I walk up to a two-story building labeled Public House and look in through the front window. I see what looks like a hundred women and men sitting around wooden tables on wooden chairs clenching wooden ladles and metal flagons on their fists. It's difficult to see too far into the place because of the smoke that's built up in the room. But I'm pretty sure I can see a few people sucking on their ladles. Some even more frequently than their flagons. They suck, suck, suck. And after a long draw, they hold their breath before letting out this giant cloud that could threaten rain. It's at this point, I realize that these people aren't sucking on ladles at all. This place seems great. It's unlike any place I've ever been before. The whole scene is foreign in almost every way, like something out of an old vid, or a history sim. And yet there's something familiar here. It's like it's been taken from some deep suppressed memory, lost to everything but the nose. It's as if at one point I was part of this place, but now all that's left is the impression, poorly defined and barely smoldering. It's stronger than ever, but now it's mixed with sticky sweet and sour smell in that hunk of dried beer. I can't resist it any longer. The moment the door opened, Jacob was severely
0: affected. A grin almost immediately crawled its way onto his face. The public house exuded jubilation and energy, and it was hard to resist being caught up in the excitement. About what all these people were excited, Jacob could not say. At a table close by, some were playing dice, rounds for rounds. Farther off, others were puffing on their pipes and cuddling into their neighbors. Though the headcount was tremendous, the pub seemed awfully small. It was cramped, and even smaller still for the haze, and then again for three levels bars, seats, and dance floor. At the back of the floor was a tiny stage where a band was playing, fiddle, reed, and squeeze box, gaily performing the latest local flavor to a swaying audience. Jacob took a nervous step forward, unable to see much through the smoke or the crowd. He inhaled lightly at first through his sleeve, but caught a whiff of the smoke and realized that it wasn't nearly as acrid as expected. And then there was that other smell, the smelliest of all. Visibility ceased to be a problem. Jacob felt as though he instinctively knew exactly where the scent was coming from, and he pushed his way in that direction. People parted for him with looks of muted concern, like they had no desire to get in the way of this starved beast on the prowl. But then, a tall, burly man clenching four flagons in his massive, meaty hands stopped and stood directly in Jacob's path. He stared intently, with beady, bespectacled eyes set atop a jaw far wider than his forehead, and through a thicket of brown whiskers, he spoke. Oh, look at you. Hello, you little ware! Empty hands will get you nowhere around here, friends. Here, take this. Turn the off,
2: Walder!
0: I'm be looking, so says I. <laughs> Jacob eyed the flagon, and not wanting to spoil the man's good mood, he took it. Though he thought perhaps he wouldn't allow himself to drink a strange brew from a strange man on a strange world, at least not so soon. The strange man in question sported a mane that framed his face. Combined with his stature and demeanor, Jacob decided to name him Wildman Beast Hunter.
1: Thinkin' where? That tinkin' wear comes from somewhere on my left, so I spin off that direction and wind up sitting at the bar, being chatted up by a harsh-looking, wrinkly old man named Florence. He's a sight to behold, let me tell you. Grimy white hair, grimy white skin, and false white teeth. Polished so bright, they shine. His clothing, too, is perfectly clapped. Like what, you got laundry
2: and dentist, but not soap? You can drink it if you like. I'm like it'll jump up and bite you. It's rich and creamy, like my partner Sylvia. Well, you know, he isn't that rich, but who is? <laughs> I can't stop thinking about her though, and a simile's a simile, I suppose she's sort of creamy. point is the beer's good, drink it up. I do as I told,
1: and this shit's amazing. It's like if hot fudge was beer, thick, sweet, probably some stupid alcohol content. I start to feel lighter immediately, and everything feels better. <laughs> Florence never stops talking, but I'm not listening. All I can think about is the smell and where I'm absolutely certain it's coming from. Behind a glass pane, behind the bar, behind Florence, there's this Stone Age looking thing just spinning around, roasting meat over a fire. I can't stop staring. I can't believe it. Despite everything I thought I knew about food, I never smelt this before in my life. In all my years on Vermela. all the meals from restaurants, diners, street vendors, I'd never been around for this part. I'd never seen my food being cooked. And I'm disappointed in this, of course, but hell, I'm not surprised. Just another in a long line past disappointments. Ugh. This is no time to be wallowing in the past. There are more pressing matters at hand. Florence is still gushing about something particularly agate, a new sonic seed drill or something.
2: And I interrupt him.
1: May I have one?
2: I ask. Of course you can, and you will, but first let me give you a bit of friendly advice.
1: When he says that, he puts his hand in my arm and I jump. I feel Flo's warm, grimy hands squeeze me gently and my first reaction is to pull away. I do. And then my stomach turns at the idea that that, right
2: there, was the first real human contact I've had in years. Interrupting a person around here is grounds for a whole lot of trouble. Let me tell you, there are two types of baddies on this world. So says I. Those are liars and thieves. don't be stealing our syllables, like I say friendly advice
1: Florence disappears into the kitchen and I sit draining my flagon the beer is so thick I think it might fill me up fine but then my stomach starts to howl at the thought of some fresh cooked meat I wipe a little drool off my chin as I watch Florence carve a healthy slice off the side of a shank
2: here you are then enjoy it friend probably the best steak you've ever had
1: good glory is he ever right about that the thing is disgustingly juicy spilling miracles out of every hole i put into it i slice a chunk off and pop it in my mouth and sure starvation probably has a lot to do with it but i swear these agate steaks are better than any bad crap i have ever eaten
0: the things jacob did to that meat are far too intimate and gruesome for this prudish language to describe but even so his first reaction after finishing his meal was to post about it online. And with that charming little sting, the glorious decadence of Jacob's meal fell away. He put his hands on the bar and leaned back. He was feeling small and empty, like years of his life had been stolen away, out of mind, away from access. How much of himself had he sequestered in the cloud? He looked around the bar and saw that in the time it had taken for him to devour his meal, the crowd had dispersed a little, and the haze had thinned. Florence was wiping a glass.
2: You're still working on that thinking thing, where? Thinking about thinking. What? Oh, it looks like there's something on your mind.
1: Oh, yeah. Ah, uh, my head. Hey, fill me
2: in here. How can I be a thief if you don't have any property for me to steal? Oh, so he thinks he's clever. Well you can't steal a thing here, that's true enough. But you can steal time. When the fellowship started up, there were some types who said it turned men into monsters, made it impossible to be charitable. Charitable, that was their word. No more charity, and so selfish people would rule over anarchy. How are you gonna help people if you can't buy them things? So say they. (laughs) Oh me. I'd say real charity is only really possible without money. Without things. Think of it like this. You're on... Where where are you from? Vermela. Oh, sorry to hear it. So, you're in Port Dyson, walking along. And you run into a homeless man. Not too much of a stretch. You're feeling charitable. So you... I see you're wired up, so you will him a couple hundred? Sounds about right. Right. So then you walk on your way and you meet another man. Do the same thing? Yeah, All right.
1: I see where you're going with this. How many would I help before I start thinking about my money? But I can't feel guilty about that. There's too many to help. Exactly.
2: And so your things stop you from being charitable. Even if you stop to help, you're costing yourself opportunity time, All right? Not here. Here, if someone can't build their own place, you build one for them. You'd never see a person on an Arcadian street who didn't want to be there. Well, come on! And our problems are solved when they need to be. Here on Agathon... Charity's a way of life. Oh, I, never never of I never wanted this argument. I never even places wanted to talk to Florence.
1: I start staring worst, down into my flag, and I'm wondering if this bartender is spouting nonsense it or if the smoke and out. drinks have People gone to my head.
2: Space time both. Each other, doing the lower Probably lower. both. So when I say the liars and thieves are the worst in the world, you know I mean they go against our very nature. Look, my friend. It's very simple. I don't own this air. And you don't own this air. But if I'm using it, that's my air for the moment. And as long as you respect my right, and I yours, we'll never have a problem. But if you're going around stealing people's air, then eventually that air's going to get across. It's like a foot right up your ass. Got it? Oh, well, all right, then. Is someone unhappy? Don't get stuffy. You stay here a while, it become glaringly obvious. There's no reason to it. Here, now, enjoy yourself. You really. I mean it.
1: And you know, after a little while longer, drinking that glorious sludge, I do start to enjoy myself. But about three sips into enjoying myself, I feel this tap on my shoulder. I turn around to see the time traveler looking, shall we say, impatient. All at once, I remember why I came to the Agathon in the first place. I start to stutter out of an explanation, something like, Matthew,
0: I... Ah, nah, it's fine. I should have expected this. First time on Agathon and all. This is your first time, right?
1: My auto-fat broke. I was starving when I touched down. <clears throat> yeah, it's my first time. It shows. Matthew sits down and throws Florence a look as if they'd met... Florence looks a little lost, but waves with enthusiasm anyway. What the fuck is that? You no,
0: know, I'd forgotten what this place used to be like. In my time, the music was a little darker.
1: Don't you mean, will be darker?
0: Well, as far as I'm concerned, it was. You know, I heard Florence giving you a mouthful. I wouldn't worry too much about it. This is what agates do. In this time, that is. Me too, once. They hole up, eat. Drink, smoke, and as soon as someone brings up anything close to the big issues that founded the Fellowship, oh, they're hooked. They're hooked and they can't get off. It worked. Good for us. Aren't we happy? Fig jam. Hey, let's go argue with anyone who doesn't know better and doesn't provoke us. Oh, wait. You didn't provoke him, did you? Well, either way, it's no wonder the Spur hates us. Only people who ever come here, we chirp them off the planet. We suck them into a drunken conversation that has nothing to do with whatever they came here for, it completely demolishes their concentration, and, well, we say it triggers a jolt of memory or something, like understanding needs to be jerked out of you. Something about creativity. It's true, too, but it sure as hell doesn't seem like that to the poor offworlders who haven't got a clue what's going on. And, of course, it stops working once you realize what's going on afterward. And maybe that's why we do it. To see it work again. See it for the first time catch a little flicker on the offshoot. Oh, that's the thing with all this agate perception, light of light bullshit. It only works on people who don't know it's working and we all know. Kids know younger these days. We're a planet full of teachers with no one left to teach.
1: I gotta tell you, I really don't like Matthew very much, but at least now he's taught me how to explain why.
0: (sighs) Would you listen to that band? Not a wave of pain between them. You know, after the first insurgents, you should have heard them. These folks had something to sing about then. A galaxy at war, an oncoming storm, evil on the horizon. Strife like that, horrific as it is, is awfully romantic and damn good for culture. I remember this place as a sanctuary. Everyone flocked here when their sons and daughters went to join up. And when the soldiers came back, one way or another, we all smoked our demons out with flow. There were writers, artists, speakers, singers, oh, hell, the singers! Listen to this band. These people are ecstatic. They're laughing because life is good. They're coming off a century of peace and they've had it installed in them that human beings have finally outgrown war. It's strange to be here again for this. But no, I I don't feel like I'm here again. This is new. It's fresh. Well, you know a bit more of that. Hmm? You know, maybe they're not laughing because they're content. Maybe they're laughing because they can feel it. Sometimes I thought I could feel something, something coming up just around the bend, coming up in time, like, like events had mass and they were pulling us toward
1: them. And it was tangible and visceral even. I know the feeling. I think I had it for a while. Like something big's coming for me, you know?
2: Hmm.
0: Well, I think I'm on the other end of it now, even if I am back here again. I suppose you can go back in space, but not in time.
1: Says the time traveler.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, the time I came through was more like space. It's a configuration, or a different set of events, or a new arrangement of matter, or... This place is just space. It's space moved around me. Like, there was a time when I was a piece of this puzzle, but now my teeth are weird. Your teeth? What, have you never made a jigsaw puzzle? All right, um, It's like I've been walking this one path for so long that I've left a permanent, uh, like, trench, and now the trench is still here, but it's... No, 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 no. I've lost it. Forget it. Puzzles. Teeth. Ask you...
1: Faster didn't even consider that without the net, I've got no way of asking myself anything. And it actually hurts, in an absent, open sort of way. And it feels like there's part of me that's no longer attached. Like I'm squirting brain goo from my head tube. I feel small. The memory of my species is gone, and I never bothered to keep anything. I didn't notice when I was starving, but now that I'm fed and drunk and slipping into self-examination, The pain is something I've never felt before. It's like I'm crushing my implants with my brain. Like there's some foreign body to be expelled. There are sharks in my pool and the only thing I can think to do is drain it. Forget it. Just forget it. Matthew looks at his wrist and gets up to leave. I whirl around in my chair and ask where he's going. He didn't stop and open the front door he says
0: appointment with a librarian
1: I jump up from my seat and run out the door but then I remember that I haven't paid so I spin around and re-enter the pub then of course I remember that I'm on Agathon I walk out again and behind me I hear a few practice chuckles Matthew doesn't seem to be in too much of a hurry so I walk pretty slowly behind him taking in the sights and savoring the lingering taste of my meal Ha! This place is turning me into a poet. Really, though. Arcaden is unlike any other place I've ever been. The buildings look ancient, so much so that they blend into the countryside. Most are covered in vines, others in moss, and some are actually entrenched into the hillsides. It's far from the wild and dangerous lands that I had pictured. Now that I'm here, it's like something out of a fairy tale. Every person on the street has at least this little grin on their face. On Vermela, and most everywhere else except the newest Frontier Worlds, you'd be hard-pressed to make eye contact with another person, in person. Let alone want to do it again. But on Agathon, people are warm, like... They've got this inner furnace that burns a little hotter than anywhere else. Here I can feel mirth, like... Real mirth. Not the chems. Here I feel permitted. Not just tolerated. Accepted. Another thing I notice is the kids. Everywhere I look, there are kids following grown-ups at different levels of attention. I've heard about this. The agate train their young collectively. When one hears the
0: word collectively... It's tempting to shrug it off as a synonym for someone else's problem. As in, the healthcare in Vermela is taken care of collectively, meaning the taxes Jacob already pays magically find their way to Joe Amputee, and that's none of Jacob's business. On Agathon, they take the collective and treat it like currency. Socialism doesn't exist because there's no one to enforce it. There's no joint fund because there are no funds to join. Things on Agathon just happen. The magic of free-flowing capital is performed by some unknown force, unknowable as far as Jacob was concerned. There were no estates or greenhouses, and yet there was food. There were no construction companies, and yet there were buildings. There was no health insurance, and yet there were doctors and patients.
1: A doctor and patient walk into an office on the first floor of a clinic, next to the library. The doctor is Corio. One of hundreds, I imagine, that have chosen to live out their lives on Agathon.
0: The Consortium of Corio is a front for the survivors of a genocide that took place somewhere toward the end of the Corio digital age. Not much is known about their species pre-contact aside from scanty records of the wars leading up to the genocide. There were at some point two major species alive and thriving on Corion 1, each unified near constantly in a state of cold if not red-hot war. The Temera and the Corio were approaching spacefaring technology and raced to colonize the two other habitable worlds in their system. Any further information from anyone who wasn't there is speculation based upon three facts. 1. The Chorio population was decimated, such that the species will become extinct within a few generations. 2. There are apparently no living temera. And 3. The remaining Chorio, supposedly in an effort to atone for the mistakes of their species, have publicly dedicated their lives as a people to delivering and maintaining a better quality of life for all living beings. And for a species as venerable and enduring as the corio, such a pledge is not made lightly. Any corio may live up to two
1: millennia. The corio, an entire species of survivors made pacifist by trauma, and the Agate, a culture of pacifists on principle alone, have somehow found each other among the endless sky and conspired to do no harm. Makes you think that love might not be such a far shot after all. Because of their
0: dedication to what most sentient species would call the greater good, the Koryo are widely recognized as a sanctified people within the Federation, adored by all. Humans in particular had taken such a shining to the Koryo in the early days of colonization that at the suggestion of Agni Chokshi, the founders of the Federation dubbed it Reminime after the order word for well-being and serenity, Remana. Orda is the Lingua franca, and Ramana, taken in its plural indefinite form, is remenem or as it's spelled on Agathon,
1: Remenime. Good for them. Really, I mean it. Here they are, a trans-species venture in peace and prosperity. <laughs> and then stumbles in Jacob, ambassador for the insular and insulated. I swear... When I get off this world, I'm writing a book.
0: The Archedon Library was the biggest building in town, with three stories tapering up and 200 meters on its longest side. The top floor had a balcony all around its wall-to-wall windows, and foliage burst out of every available space, including out of the open rooftop. As Jacob followed Matthew toward it, he wondered who had ordered its construction. The logistics of this planet were really starting to annoy him. Matthew barged in through the front door of the library and strode into an office block on the first floor. The door to the office closed behind him, and by the time Jacob tried, it was locked. Exasperated and forced to wait, he perused the library's amenities. Industrial fabricators, apparently free to use, workshops, garages, cyber lounges, all open to the public. There was even a room of shelves filled with books. Books. In a room full of holovid projectors, Jacob found some nuts and took a handful. He munched as he strolled, apparently feeling comfortable enough on this strange new world to eat library basket nuts without consideration. He continued to wander through the library until he stumbled upon the internet node. He rushed in to integrate himself, but was devastated to learn that there was no wireless network. He would have to use a computer patch himself into the library's internet, check his status from the last drone's perspective, whenever that had been, and then make whatever changes he chose to make and wait a day for the rest of the spur to notice. The ordeal was more trouble than it was worth. Soon the office door opened again, and Matthew walked slowly out, looking pale. Jacob had stopped wandering at this point and had settled into a chair with more nuts. Nuts? No.
1: Whoa, something the matter?
2: Uh.
0: No, no. L- leave me for a while.
1: What? No way. Not
0: a chance. What do you know? I know that I'm getting back on my ship and heading to Simpkin. Simpkin? Where's that? Are you serious? <sighs> my home. I need to see for myself. Well, can I come? Oh, oh, you're asking now. You could, yeah. And I can't stop you but I have to recommend that you do not. Why is that? Because I don't know you. You follow me here, hoping, I suppose, to witness the great spectacle of my travels, and then you get caught in the pub like a damn tourist, and godess, <sighs> S- I hate tourists, and now you want to follow me into what may be the most intimate and private moment of my life.
1: So there are two of you.
0: No! So what? What did you find out? Earlier, I ran a few searches for myself, and I couldn't come up with anything. Fine, I thought. I used to move around a lot, and I tried to keep off the records. So, I met with a librarian. Information is free, but it's plentiful, and no one knows it like the librarians. If anyone were going to be able to find me, or at least find my family, it would be that where, but... (laughs) But what? He'd never heard of me before. Didn't even know my surname. It's like nothing to do with me has ever existed, so say he. Crackpot, so says I. The library's getting sloppy. I got him to run a search for Rebecca. She's in Simpkin and I'm going there now. If you're coming, follow me aboard the Cutlass. This has been the fifth episode of Cycles of Orion, Volume 1, Fire in the Dark. Starring Michael Palmer as Jacob, Nicholas Quinnell as Florence, and E.P. Danis as both the narrator and the time traveller. We would like to thank the creators at freesound.com and Purple Planet Music, without whom this series would be a lot duller. And of course, we would like to thank you for listening. Tune in next month for the conclusion of Jacob and the Time Traveller in Simpkin. And in the meantime, don't forget to share on social media, And if you want to read more from E.P. Danis, well, head on over to epdanis.com.